clap your hands. Yes, definitely. I love how they sang a song about joy when we're talking about Ecclesiastes. I feel like we're going to need a lot more of that. Maybe happy and you know it. All, just a lot of happy stuff. Cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, hey, I'm glad you're here. Um, my name is Chris. If we haven't met, um, I'm your tour guide as we walk along the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm really glad... Uh, well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're back from last week's history lesson of King Solomon. And then this week we dove in to the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. And then I had you do what? Go to the back. Yeah, go to the back. Who loves that? Yeah. I know. Well, hey, it was good today, okay? Because we needed some positivity, amen? We didn't want to end after chapter one, right? So we covered chapter 12. So we're going to look at that in a minute. But um, before we start, I just want to point out something. Um, this week, I know you read, all of you read in your homework, um, that, that it's about cycles and circles, right? It's about how there's cycles of life, and Solomon's going to go into this whole big poetic thing about how the th same things happen over and over and over, and history repeats itself, and nothing ever is different. And then I remembered that last week I talked about Dallas Cowboys winning a game. <laughs> it's my fault. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. <laughs> Ew, it was so ugly. In fact, it was so funny because when I went through my notes, I'm like, oh, I had this cute little puppy story. And I'm like, no, I owe you guys an apology because I either jinxed them or, or I just made a really great illustration for how the same thing happens every year over and over and over, right? I mean, that's Ecclesiastes 1 right there. Um, so I apologize if you cried your sports tears with me. Um, I'm sad. But you know, there's always next year. <laughs> Same thing, vanity of vanities, right? Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter one. I'm going to pray, and we're going to we're going to get right into it. Okay, Father, um, we thank you so much. We thank you for um, words that are hard to hard to read sometimes, hard to study. And God, I I feel a heavy burden on me today to remind everyone in this room that we love you so much and we want to understand, but we also want to be able to rest in the mystery of who you are. And so, Father, that's my hope today. I pray for all of us here that in those places where we don't understand and where it gets confusing and Solomon gets annoying, um, that we can trust you. And that's the beautiful thing is we don't have to have it figured out. God, you do. So thank you for being a big God. Um, we just thank you so much for all of these words, and we thank you ultimately that they all do point to your son who came to this earth for our lives, for our salvation. So thank you. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter one, we are going to roll through this together as a team because we're best friends, right? Um, open your Bible to Ecclesiastes one. I, before we move into the meat of what we're going to talk about, I wanted to read it and remind you of kind of what was happening in verses one through three, okay? Verses one through three, it starts out with an introduction. This is who I am, right? And then a question in verse three, and I think it's important that we read it. So follow along with me if you have your Bible um, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So we're going to pause. That's the question, right? 
That right there in verse three is the question that he is going to be focused on for the rest of the chapter. And then the cool part is in chapter 12, we get the answer. And because I am so lovely and wonderful, I let us read that first, right? Because we needed that hope. We needed that answer, didn't we? Well, he leads us this way. If if everything is temporary and life is um, under the sun is vain, okay, then what is left? What matters? There's got to be more, right? Vanity of vanities. In your homework, you talked about this, and I think there's a little section in there that talks about the original Hebrew word is hevel, hevel. When something's repeated, God wants us to pay attention, right? And that word hevel is not as much, not probably not meaningless, you know, because a lot of times we see it translated as everything is meaningless. And I don't really think when you read the word that that's what it meant. A better definition would be passing or fleeting or temporary. And that is true. While circles and cycles are happening all the time, everything is fleeting, right? Well, in verses four through seven, we're gonna learn about Solomon as the scientist. You're gonna see he's gonna take a science approach, okay? And then in verses eight through 11, he's gonna be a historian. And then in verses 12 through 18, he's gonna talk like a philosopher. And then lastly, in chapter 12, the best part, right? is he's gonna talk about hope. He's gonna be a hope giver. So if you're in your Bible, go ahead and take a look at verses four through seven. We're gonna take a look at him as a scientist. You see, in these verses, in this little section, okay, it's basically Solomon reminding us of this, that nothing changes, right? Like the cycles, like the Dallas Cowboys, you know, all the things that just don't change. But what he's gonna do is he's gonna turn science guy on us and he's gonna give us four elements of nature examined. Did you see that? He's gonna talk us through the earth, the sun, the wind, and the sea. You see, it's like a wheel of nature because everyone, isn't it cool? Like even, you know, all these thousands of years ago when this was written, they still understood the nature cycles of nature, right? The elements of nature, the laws of nature like we do today. He's gonna talk about how there's change all around us and yet nothing really changes, right? So look with me at verse four where he starts talking about the earth. He says this in verse four, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, what he's saying is he's talking about the certainty of life, which means there is brevity of life and there is certainty of death. Nature is permanent, right? Man is transient. We're just like on a pilgrimage. In verse five, he goes on and he compares the other element to, he talks about the sun. He says this, the sun, circle that, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. So he's painting a visual picture for us, right? That all of us can see and we understand what he's talking about. He's saying, it's like Groundhog Day. You know, one day is the same as the next. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, it keeps going. He moves on in his little science experiment and talks about the wind. In verse six, he says this, the wind, circle that, it blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit, the wind returns. Interesting thing, he goes from the visible, you know, he's talking about the earth and the sun to the invisible, right? There's constant movement with the wind, constant motion. It goes around and around. You know, even um, Jesus talks about the wind when he talks to Nicodemus in John chapter eight, verses the uh, chapter, excuse me, John chapter three, verse eight. He says this, he said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. 
It's never changing, never stopping, always moving. Nature. So then he moves into the talk of the sea, right? Verse 7, he says this, all the streams run to the sea, circle sea, that the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You know what's crazy? I, like, I joke about this, him being a scientist. I am so not the scientist ever or the mathematician. I'm sure you figured that out already, right? But here's what's fascinating is when you really understand or even just get a little glimpse of the whole water cycle thing, you really, really, really can, can settle on this fact that water sustains life. Water sustains life, right? So I find it interesting that Solomon, our, our wise Solomon, ends with that when he's talking about nature. He's talking about how the streams run into the sea and that they're never, ever empty. You know, um, a science fact, here's a little science fact that I got from a real scientist, not obviously me, um, that any given moment, 97% of all the water in the earth is in the ocean at any given moment, no matter what the weather patterns are doing, only that 0.0001 is in the atmosphere available for rain. And, and, and Solomon knows this. So when he's comparing this, this life that we're living and how it's cyclical, but yet it's the same, he knows what he's talking about. I think about this. He, he goes through these four elements of, of nature. And so far in Ecclesiastes, I just have a quick question. How many times... Have you seen him mention God so far? How many? Go, you can just look. I'll give you a minute. Zero times. <laughs> He's mentioned God zero times. Think about this for just a minute. He is leaving God out of the equation. When you leave God out, he's making a point, you see, because he's talking about nature, the laws of nature. These things are things we can explain. But what do we know about our God? God does break into nature, doesn't he? He can. He does. He has. And so by Solomon not mentioning it, we see here that, that, that he's trying to make a point. You know, if we leave God out of it, yeah, then it's the same every day. Nothing really matters, right? Hevel, hevel, vanity of vanities. So think about this for just a minute. Okay, I'm not even talking about how God has, has broken into nature in your own personal lives because I will tell you this, we have a God who sits on the throne and we have a Jesus who sits there and intercedes in our prayer and they hear every prayer and they collect every tear. Okay, so that's pretty amazing. That's breaking into nature. I'm not even gonna use that example. I'm gonna use concrete examples in the Bible. The way that we know that God is broken into nature. Here's just a couple. Jot this down. Joshua 10, verses six through 14. You know what happened? The sun stood still. Go back and read that. That's a good one. In Exodus 14 and in Joshua chapters three through five, God holds back the sea so his people can cross. I'd say he's breaking into nature. Mark chapter four, verses 35 through 41, one of my favorites. He calms the winds and the waves for the disciples. We can go on and on and on, but these are just examples. And so, Right here, right now, Solomon's already painted this picture of, of when you leave God out of life, the world is a closed system that's uniform, predictable, and unchangeable. When you leave God out, it is a closed system that is uniform, predictable, and unchangeable, okay? Well, he moves on into a position of, of becoming a historian, if you will, 
In verses eight through 11, he kind of changes his tune. In fact, before, in those uh, first couple verses, he was saying nothing changes. Now he's gonna show us that nothing is new, okay? So verse eight goes like this, follow along. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied, circle that, not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That's verse eight. You know how I translate this? This is the Chris version. You're welcome. You can write this down in pen. We want more, better, different, don't we? We are never, ever, ever satisfied. I say we, but I mean y'all too. I mean all of us. This isn't just a royal we. We are not satisfied, are we? And Solomon's calling attention to that. I think about this. I think about when I had little, little stinky toddler kids, like little short, small ones. You know how you could trick them? It's, it's harder now that they're big and grown up and adults, but you could trick them, you know? You could get out toys, right? This is good parenting. So if you're a parent of young something or other, just jot this down. You would get some toys out, right? And have them be like the toys and then hide the rest of them, Right? And then you cycle through them. And like every now and then you bring them out. It's like, oh, there's new toys. I'm trying that on my puppy. It's not working quite as well, but sort of working. But, you know, that's the thing. It's like because toddlers, you don't have to teach them to want more, better, different, do you? They're not satisfied. I think about this. Um, This is a little spoiler. In chapter three, verse chapter three, I think verse eleven. Later on, we're going to learn a little bit why we feel this way. Why we're the toddlers that aren't satisfied with our toys? Here's why: because God put eternity in our hearts. There's a whole section that we're going to talk about where where He is 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 creating a quest for us because only He can fill that void, and yet we keep trying to fill it with our toddler toys and our grown-up toys, right? And so we're just the same as Solomon, as Ecclesiastes. Well, in verses nine and 10, he goes on to say, so nothing is new because we always want what we don't have. And so verses nine and 10 go like this, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new, circle that, under the sun, verse 10 Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Interesting. What do you think he means by that? Nothing is new. There's new stuff all the time, right? All the time. I'll challenge your thinking on that. And this this challenged my thinking too. I would challenge you with this. The world cannot create new. Only God creates new. Nothing is new under the sun. Did you see that phrase? Like that word, we're gonna, that little phrase we're going to see over and over because that means now here on earth. I heard it explained this way when I, I thought this was brilliant, this quote. Um, there's a longtime pastor at Chicago's Moody Church, Dr. Ironside, and he said this about newness, okay? He said, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. <laughs> Let that soak in. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Whatever is new is simply a retread of what already was. Um, I'm a writer, and so I get real sideways about plagiarism. Like, I'm just always afraid I'm going to say or do or write something that somebody already said or did or wrote, right? And so I'm always, like, really panicked about it. My friend Rebecca, you know, if you were here last semester, you know what she said to me one time? She said, hey, Chris, all truth is God's truth. And she's like, I-, I-, I thought, that was very freeing. I don't have to worry about plagiarizing. She goes, well, you kind of do. You know, don't, don't like steal stuff. But I love that, the bigness of that idea. All truth is God's truth. 
Interesting. Let me give you a case in point, okay? Ready? I'm gonna prove it to you. That, that there's nothing new under the sun, that everything that we think is new and we're bringing in is actually a retread. Ready? Two words. 80s fashion. <laughs> Need more than that, Christy. Yeah. I had a moment with my daughter. She's 20 now. Um, I remember a year or so ago, she came in one day and she's like, Mom, she has really long, amazing, beautiful, wonderful hair. She got it from her dad. She came in and she's like, there's this great new thing that you can use as a ponytail and it won't make your hair like all crimped when you put a ponytail holder in it. It doesn't hurt your head. It's no headache. I'm like, oh, really? What's it called? She said, scrunchy. <laughs> I'm like, girl, I invented the scrunchie. <laughs> Me and my people, right? My people, my 80s people. We did scrunchies and shoulder pads, and now they're all trying to come back. It's just weird. So just, that's your Ecclesiastes lesson for the week. Nothing is new. It's always a retread. God does create newness, though, doesn't he? We know this over and over in his word. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You know what we know? We know this, that if we accept Jesus as our Savior, that we become a new creation, that's not scrunchies and shoulder pads. That's new, you know? In Psalm 51.10, we can know that he can create a clean heart in us. We can ask him for that. Romans 6.4, we can know that when we accept Jesus, when we have a relationship with him, we walk in the newness of life. And Revelation 21.5, we can know this, that he will make all things new and he is coming back to do so, Amen. And so he does create new. We don't. We're 1980s. We're scrunchies and shoulder pads. You're welcome. I, uh, I think about verse 11. We go on into this next section. It follows 9 and 10. And he says this, there is no remembrance of former things. So he's kind of following up. This is why nothing's new. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will they be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after why do we think things are new? Why do we think scrunchies and shoulder pads are a new idea? Here's why. We don't read the meeting minutes. You ever been in a meeting and like Joe didn't come last week and the meeting minutes went out and then Joe shows up this week and Joe has all these brilliant ideas and you're like, hey, yo, Joe, we did that last week, right? Read the minutes. I feel like that is what Solomon's saying because he's saying we are bad rememberers, Amen. I know you know this. We know this. We think, we think, we, again, the royal we, me, you, all of us, we think that the younger generations are the only ones that don't listen. We don't either, right? We're bad at remembering, we're bad at listening, and we're really bad at receiving, okay? Ancient philosophers understood this. See, they knew this. They said this. This was an ancient philosopher kind of thing. Methods are many. Principles are few. Methods always change, but principles never do. We just retread, you know. We bring back the new scrunchie. That's what we do over and over. We're bad at remembering. We don't read the meeting notes, and so we don't pay attention. That's what Solomon's saying. All true, right? Not fun, but true. Amen? You know it's true. I'm looking at you. I can see you. Well, when you mistake novelty for originality, you put your faith in yourself, your circumstances, and in this world. When we do that, when we decide that, that what we are doing is new and we don't recognize that only God makes new, then we put all the pressure on ourselves, you know, on our circumstances when things are going right. 
on the world, what the world's telling me, you know? Well, scientist, nothing changes. Historian, nothing is new. All great news. This is so fun. I'm so glad you're here. All right, the next thing he does is he moves into philosopher mode. In in verses 12 through 18, he is going to talk us through it like this. Ready? Nothing is understood. Nothing is understood. I bet some of us are like, amen, I don't understand any of this. Well, verses 12 through 18, follow along with me. He goes into philosopher mode here. In verses 12 and 13, he says this, I, the preacher, have been the king over Israel in Jerusalem. Okay, we already knew that, so cool, whatever. And I applied my heart, circle that, to seek and to search out by wisdom all, circle that, that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. You see, what he's trying to help us understand when he says, I'm the king, he's basically saying, here's what you got to know. I had every possible resource to experiment with every possible solution there possibly could ever be to make my life worth living. I did it all. He did more than we could do, right? In later chapters, we're going to get the verses um, of of all the details of that experiment. This is just the 30,000 foot view that we're hearing about right now, right? Well, the term applied my heart. You see that it said he applied his heart. Listen, I know that we got, we got a little saucy about that in our, in our leader meeting talking about that. We're like, oh, applied all that wisdom, did you? Really smart. Well, here's what you can know. When it says I applied my heart, that word heart, it kind of equates mind, will, emotion. So it's all these things, okay? So what he's trying to tell us is that I set my mind to seek. I gave my heart to all of these things and I still couldn't possibly satisfy my wants and desires. And so he's saying, nothing is understood because everything I possibly could experiment with, it was all unhappy business. So he goes in to say, he goes, these are some of my conclusions. Okay, so that's what I am. I'm the king, I did everything, I had everything. And so let's see what he concluded. Verse 14, the conclusion starts here. He says this, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. In other words, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy to do all these things and not understand. It's like chasing after the wind. It's like running after the rainbow. It's like what all the little, the little different word pictures you talked about in your homework you're going to discuss later. It's all those things. Not easy. In verse 15, he goes on and he says this, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, he said in verse 14, it's not easy. And then in verse 15, he's telling us, you can't control everything. I can't control everything. Not everything that's crooked in life is going to be straightened, right? That's a hard fact. I kind of went down a left turn here, and I just I feel like we need to talk about this because you know what happens for me? Um, I've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a long time, and I've been studying my Bible for a long time, and this is still hard, amen? I don't understand this. He's God. He can make crooked things straight all the time. He can make what is lacking be counted, and yet he doesn't always, does he? Can God straighten the crooked? Yes. Does he always do it? No. Some parts of life stay broken, remain tangled, never get straightened out. Um, 
as I was doing this lesson, I thought back to a couple weeks ago. I have a friend who is in the thick of it with cancer right now. And um, she was just about to start a new treatment because she had just learned that it had spread and it was all over her brain. And so she called and said, hey, I'm going to get the, I want the elders to come pray over me. You know, serious business. So she called us and it was kind of late at night. We all like threw on our shoes and, you know, ran over there in our PJs and the elders came over and they all started praying. I've never, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. This, this story may not be uncrooked. <laughs> it may not get made straight, this side of heaven, okay? But what I got to see in that room was so holy, I can't even express it with words because here's why. Because while we were in this room talking about um, the broken things, the crooked things, right? There were prayers going up to heaven about thy will be done. Even if you don't. And even my friend, you know, praying, God, just use every bit of it, every minute of it, every pain, every joy, every radiation treatment, every chemotherapy treatment, everything. And like, I'm in the room, like, I'm just watching this going, this cannot be, this cannot be real. Sometimes our lives get wrecked with diagnosis stuff, right? Sometimes death comes too soon. Sometimes loss overwhelms us, fear paralyzes us. Betrayal, abandonment, pain, struggle that cannot be explained or rationalized, right? And we know that God can fix, he can repair, he can straighten the crooked, he can do it, but sometimes he doesn't. And that's hard. And it's okay to say that because you know what? God is so cool. Let me tell you this. Let me promise you this. He loves it when you come to him with a broken heart and say, yeah, God, those prayers were beautiful, but I want you to heal my friend. It's okay. He can handle it. He is God. I think oftentimes it's too easy for us to get stuck in this place of wanting to control everything and, and we forget that we can trust a God who can and sometimes doesn't because he has bigger plans, greater plans, better plans. I have no doubt in my mind he will answer the prayers that were prayed in that room that night. I don't know which ones and I don't know what time and, and what it's gonna look like. And so I wanna encourage you, when you read that and you see that and you get a little sideways, you know, well, God didn't make anything crooked, anything straight in my life. Let me tell you, let me promise you that if you trust him and you believe, you can rely on him and you can know that even when you have to sit in a room like that and say, even if you don't, he still is there. I think about people that don't have that. My husband actually said that when we left that room that night. He said this, what about the people that don't believe? What does their room look like? It's hopeless. And, and so that's what Solomon is laying out for us. He's trying to show us it is hopeless without him. Nothing is understood. Sometimes it's just too hard and too big for us in our little finite minds, in our little, little corner of, our, of the universe to understand the why behind things. But I assure you of this, that he is the God of all of it. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Verses 16 through 18. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom 
surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. We'll hear more about that later. I perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So philosophical, right? It's like he's coming to terms with what we just talked about, you know? That he knows that it's not easy, that he knows I can't control everything, and that he knows that wisdom and experience and any other gift that God gives you, us, Solomon, can't answer all the questions. We wish they could, right? In the New Living Translation, verse 18 is translated like this, which I thought was so great. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. You know, there's something beautiful about the mystery of God, amen? Because I will tell you this, and I I believe this with everything in my soul, that there are some things that have happened in life and that God allows to happen in life. And while I don't understand them, if he stood before me right here and said, all right, Chris, let me tell you why. Here you go. Let me tell you why we did it. Let me tell you why she didn't make it and why she did. Let me tell you why he left and why he didn't. And let me tell you, know what would happen? Nothing. (laughs) It would not be good enough. Don't you think? I don't think God could come here and say, let me lay out the whole plan for you and you would still live a life understanding cancer and death and divorce and all the things. I just don't think it's true. So we lean into the mystery of who he is and we trust him, you know? When you put your hope in full understanding and control, you will never find peace. I can promise you that. I have lived this portion of Ecclesiastes When you put your hope in full understanding and control, you will never find true peace. You see, because just like we've learned, we can't ever understand it all, but he can and he does. So put your hope in him. Well, what if we ended right here? Wouldn't that be so depressing? Very depressing, right? That's why I gave you chapter 12. So flip with me to the back of Ecclesiastes. We're gonna read the ending first because we need it, don't we? Now you know what's coming in this book. You see, you've seen the overview and and Solomon's gonna take us deep and dive into some specifics. And we're gonna see ourselves and it's gonna be hard sometimes, but the beauty is we have chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see Solomon as the hope giver. The book ends where it began in verse eight. Look at verse eight and see if you recognize this. Besides being wise, excuse me, that's that's nine. Verse eight, vanity of vanity says the preacher all is vanity. That's exactly how we started, okay? Verses nine and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Right there we see that he's talking um, in the third person again. Remember we talked about that in week one, you've slept since then. He, he's basically like, um, like think about this. When he speaks in third person, he's kind of like the narrator and he's kind of like giving himself license to brag on God while he speaks in the third person. Okay, so that's kind of why he does it. But he shifts back there and he weighs that studying and arranging and all these things he's done in great care. Did you notice the shift in the verb tense? Is that he starts speaking in past tense. So he's looking back, right? Well, he goes on in verse 11 
And he says this, the words of the wise, underline that or circle that or something, we'll come back, are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I love it. You know why I love it? Because he's talking about this inspired, given word of God. He's recognizing here. Now see, here's the beauty. We, we sit on a different side of history. Amen? Like where Solomon was, you know, he didn't have the New Testament. But what we have is this, this whole inspired book that is like God's, like, that's his like voice, you know? And we have it and we can trust it. It's goads and nails. I love that. We were laughing. We're like, we need a t-shirt made about that. Goads and nails, goads. I, I got a picture. I think I got a picture somewhere in here about goads. They're lovely things. Um, here's what you can understand about goads. They're tools, okay? Doesn't that look fabulous? They push the oxen, okay? They have a particular purpose, it's not a shepherd's staff. You know, like when we think about the shepherds that have the big tall thing, it's not that, okay? This is a, that, that's like to protect them against wolves. What a goat is, ready? A goat is this long, sharp stick that's used to get the oxen going the way you want them to go. One jab and the hind legs of the oxen and the goad will keep going until the, ox co- until the ox cooperated. It's used to push and prod them to stay on the right path somewhere they didn't know they needed to go or someone they, somewhere they didn't want to go. It pushes them on the right path somewhere they didn't know they needed to go or somewhere that they didn't want to go. In Acts 26, verse 14, you might remember this if you've studied the New Testament at all. Paul, he was Saul at the time. His conversion story, he's referred to as kicking against the goads. It's because that would have been understood that this is, this is this tool that's used for a purpose and we don't like it, do we? We got scars from that thing, right? His word pushes us, it prods us, it challenges us. It is not always comfortable and it does not always take us places we wanna go, right? Well, he talks about how this inspired word is like goads, but he also says nails. That makes sense to us, more sense to us. And in this 2020-23 culture, like we kind of know what a nail is, but let me give you something to think about. At the time that this was written, so it's always important to understand history and context, right? At the time that this is written, nails were, were all about firmly fixing things like a tent, okay? So think about like a tent peg, Okay. People, when they were wandering, God's people, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they didn't have like a nice little, you know, three-bedroom, you know, two-car garage with a nice backyard in Lantana, you know? They had tents. They had tents that had to be held down, and so they'd be held down firmly fixed by a nail. We also know that Jesus was secured on the cross with nails, right? His word secures and holds us. Goads, his word pushes us, prods us, challenges us, isn't comfortable. Nails, his word secures us and holds us and isn't always comfortable, right? His word is given by the one shepherd. I love that um, we see the whole of Ecclesiastes. We see all these things that Solomon's talking about that are not God. Remember chapter one, we're like, where is God? He's not even mentioned here. He's, is he even in this book? At the end, where it matters Here he is. It's like Solomon says, okay, I'm wrapping this thing up and I want you to hear this one thing. 
This was given by the one shepherd. Verse 12, he goes on. He says, my son, remember, we think he's probably speaking or leaving this to to future generations, okay? He could have been talking about his own son. We don't really know. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Think about this. There are many voices, okay? If you, if you take, take yourself out of Ecclesiastes' time, Solomon's time, I want you to think about your life. What are the voices that are speaking into your life? At the time, he's referring to many books. I think that while we may not read many books, we listen to many voices. We watch many things. Don't let the many books, the many voices rob you of God's wisdom. That's what he's saying. He's saying that to them. He's saying that to us. Don't test God's truth by man's books. Test men's books or words or blogs or posts or comments by God's word. This is truth. Everything out there must be held up to the truth to see if it's real. Instead of the other way around. We do it the other way around, don't we? Yeah, we listen to somebody speak or we listen to something. We're like, oh, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. And we forget to put it through the lens of the truth because sometimes those fancy words lie to us. Don't test God by man's books. Test men's books by God. Verse 13 and 14, he's wrapping it up. The end of the matter, he says, All has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's wrapping the whole thing up. The end of the matter. In other words, this is the purpose of life. This is the answer to chapter three. I mean, chapter one, verse three. This is it. This is the answer. It's given by the shepherd. He says two things. What are the two things he says? One, fear God doesn't he? Fear God, to know that he is God and you are not. That word fear, sometimes that, that feels, it doesn't feel right, does it? Well, we're not talking about being afraid of God. We're not talking about big, scary God. We're talking about a God that we reveal and revere and that we trust and we love. I think um, about this quote by Oswald Chambers. I think you'll appreciate it. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas, if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Amen? So we're to fear God. The second thing they tell us to do there, what does Ecclesiastes tell us? What does King Solomon tell us? He tells us to do what God says. Fear God, do what he says. The only way to do this, you see, it actually builds upon itself. The only way to actually do what God says is to fear God first. Fearing God results in wanting to live an obedient life. I don't know about you. I am, there's a lot of things I'm not great at, but I'll tell you what, when, when, I, am, when I am really um, walking with the Lord, you know what I want to do more than anything else? I want to do what he wants me to do. I want to be more like Jesus. That's what I want more than anything else because you know what? If I want to be a good wife or a good puppy owner or a good mom to a, you know, a little adults or whatever, you know how I do that? I fear God and I obey his word because he wants that for me too. It's like if I just buy into what he's selling, everything else just kind of follows. It's like a wake, you know? I, uh, I, I would add a third here based on what we hear, what we read here. He says, fear God, do what he says, 
The third, I would say, prepare for final judgment. Prepare for final judgment. We don't like that word, do we? That's a yucky word. But here's all, here's all that means. There will come a day, whatever you believe, that you will stand before God. It will happen. It's gonna happen. How are we preparing for that? Hope in the present is dependent on security of the future. Do you have security of your future, of your eternity? Are you ready? Um, I'm gonna close with something here. And I just, I, I, I wrote the scriptures on the, pay, on the screen and I, that's fine, you wanna jot them down or anything, but I just want you to hear something, okay? I want you to think about this. All these things that Solomon has laid out for us, right? Here's the question I have for you. Are you gonna live a life of vanity or live a life of victory? It's a fair question. It's a question I'm asking myself this week too. Chris, do you live a life chasing after vanity, nothing but smoke? Or are you chasing after victory that comes through our one true shepherd? It's a circle, right? Hevel, hevel, vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. Where's your hope? Is it in vanity or is it victory? Two people I want to speak to today. First, if you have never trusted Jesus as your savior, you may have been in church your whole life or you may never and this may be your first time. I'm sure glad you're here. But if you haven't said to him like, I, 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 I can't do this. I trust you with my life. If you haven't done that, then this book urges you to do that without delay. Because no matter how much wealth, education, social prestige things you have, life without God is futile and you are only chasing smoke. And if you expect to find satisfaction and personal fulfillment in the things of this world, you will be disappointed every single time Solomon was. He had everything. The other person is this. Do you know Jesus? If you know Jesus, I'm gonna ask you this question. Are you living for the Lord or for the things of this world? I'm asking myself the same question as we read through this. Who am I? How am I living? Remember, Solomon knew God, and he turned from him and went his own way. I hope you know him. I hope you choose victory. I'm going to read a couple verses because I feel like we just need this over us, poured over us today, and then I'm going to pray and we're going to take off. John 1.14 says this, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory and the glory as of his only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. Matthew six thirty three says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things will be added to you. Second Corinthians four, eight through 10. We are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer slaves, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Romans 8, 37 through 39. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
In Matthew 16, 26, and I feel like this is the best way to wrap up this week in Ecclesiastes. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Victory or vanity, you get to choose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Solomon. We thank you that we have evidence that he came back to you. I thank you for that. I thank you for the example that he gives to question, to ask, to to be frustrated, to be confused, but ultimately to point to you. And so, Father, I pray that our lives do the same. And for those in this room who maybe don't know you as their Savior, I pray, I pray, oh God, I pray that today's the day. And Lord, for those of us that have followed you for a long time, but sometimes it's just hard and we are tired and we're confused. Will you remind us, will you renew, like you said, you can create a new heart in us? We need it and we need you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.